Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine and More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Now, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? Welcome to Talking Feds. A roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Should we be surprised? Roe versus Wade has been under siege, it seems, from the day it issued nearly 50 years ago. Legal and political conservatives have reserved a special measure of rancor for a case they see as the epitome of judicial activism. And political leaders, nearly all men, have never ceased to make hay from railing against the case. And the prevalence of abortion in the United States, figures suggest about one in every four American women have abortions in their lifetimes, is a continuing source of outrage for pro-life forces. It thus was a smart political move for Donald Trump, himself a late convert to the pro-life position, to promise the appointment of justices to the Supreme Court who would overturn Roe versus Wade. And it appears... To have succeeded. The Supreme Court heard argument in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization this week, and court watchers were left with the firm impression that the 50-year effort to undo the court's abortion rights jurisprudence has finally borne fruit. The court seems poised to uphold Mississippi's ban on almost all abortions after 15 weeks, some two months earlier than the constitutional line drawn in Roe and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. It is a watershed moment in the court's history and one with massive implications for the court, the American political landscape, and not least, American women. To try to take stock of the enormous moment and calibrate its certain seismic impact on American life and the court's own role in it, we are joined today by a superb panel of Supreme Court experts, and they are Daya Lithwick, a senior editor at Slate, where she writes Supreme Court dispatches and jurisprudence and where she hosts their excellent Supreme Court podcast, Amicus. In 2018, she won the Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. The judges described her as the nation's best legal commentator for the last two decades. Daya, good to see you back on Talking Feds. Thank you for having me. Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU, the Faculty Director of Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network, and a leading expert in family law, constitutional law, and reproductive rights and justice. She is an author of Cases on Reproductive Rights and Justice, the first case book of its kind, a prolific writer in law reviews and popular news outlets, an MSNBC legal analyst, and the co-host of the also excellent Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Welcome back, Melissa. Thanks, Harry. It's great to be here. 
and Kate Shaw, a professor of law and the co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo Law School. She, too, is a co-host of Strict Scrutiny, along with Melissa and Leah Littman. So if this conversation is interesting, you'll definitely want to tune in to that podcast. Kate worked with the White House Counsel's Office as a special assistant to the president and associate counsel to the president from 2009 to 2011. Thanks, as always, for being here, Kate Shaw. Thanks, Harry. Good to be here. So, turns out the sky was falling. Let's start here. Big cases, the court often plays its hand close to the vest. You get a sense in oral argument even that they're thinking their positions through Not here, right? It seemed evident from pretty much the beginning of the argument that they were going to uphold the Mississippi statute. Did everyone get that vibe as well? Strong yes. No one was being cagey. Yeah, the gloves were off. Whatever people said at their confirmation hearings about Roe was clearly there was no effort to square that with what was being said from the bench. There was a remarkable... Lack of hesitation, especially, I thought, on the part of Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and 180 degree different from their respectful peons to stare decisis. I've heard the word gaslighting thrown around a lot this week. Do you think that's the fair inference? And do you think the one that American people in history are now going to draw? So I think one way to think about it is gaslighting. And I know, Dahlia, you use that word in a piece that you wrote for Slate this week. You know, I think another way to think about it, and I think this is probably how the justices think about it. And so this is sort of me trying to occupy the mind of a conservative jurist. And I don't think that they see any inconsistency with their positions. They Mm -hmm. said at their confirmations that these were precedents, surely, but they also said stare decisis is not an inexorable command. They said that in lots of different decisions. Justice Gorsuch, in a decision he wrote that overruled a prior case, noted that stare decisis was not an inexorable command. And I think they are all sort of on board with Justice Thomas's view of stare decisis, which is to say that stare decisis is fine, except when a decision is, as he put it, demonstrably erroneous. And when it is demonstrably erroneous, and by that he means untethered from constitutional text, then it is the court's obligation, they would say, to correct it by not following it, by getting rid of it entirely. And so I don't think they see this as acting outside of their role, but rather as being utterly consistent with what they see as their role. We actually got a peon to overruling from Justice Kavanaugh, who came armed to the bench with a whole list of landmark cases that themselves had overruled. One more point about the argument. Did you feel there was any time in the 70 or so minutes that was at all dramatic, where it seemed that any point was open to debate, where any advocate or justice, for that matter, seemed to be making any headway I I would just say that to me, the most dramatic thing was poor Chief Justice John Roberts alone on an ice floe, flailing his arms around saying, but guys, we really should just talk about viability in 15 weeks. Like we could do this and not look like a bunch of cowboys. And just the degree to which he was alone, he seemed to remain alone. The lack of anyone helping him with that project was really startling. I felt like he was on the moon on a moon where 
he really thought he could cabin this thing to, we'll just uphold 15 weeks and reserve for another day the foundational questions of stare decisis and overturning Roe. And just like all around him, it was like watching in the movies where they speed up the scenery. Like he was just sitting there and he was on a different court. Like he thought he was still in charge of this court and the court was just careening past him like, see ya, sucker. We're not having that conversation. That was striking to me. Melissa and I on our podcast with Leah Littman joke about apparently sort of the Thomas clerk community has taken to calling Thomas Chief Justice Thomas. And it actually feels like maybe that's an accurate description of who actually is in control of the court at this moment, that Roberts is the Chief Justice in name only. And it really was. He was relegated to such profound irrelevance, it seemed, in the oral argument, that it really was striking. And I mean, look, I don't think we thought he would make much headway with Thomas or Alito or even Gorsuch. But it was really striking how thoroughly uninterested both Kavanaugh and Barrett seemed to be in even paying some lip service to kind of openness to this Roberts effort, it seemed, to essentially pump the brakes a little bit, just try to find some way to justify jettisoning this viability line the court set forth in Casey, but not to take on the question of whether to overturn Roe and Casey. And I think we should say, look, There are going to be months of negotiations, I think, about how these opinions actually write. But just in terms of I don't feel totally confident that I know exactly how the opinions can be written. I do think that most likely it will contain some version of the sentence Roe and Casey are overruled. But I also think that it actually kind of matters a lot what happens behind the scenes and a little bit outside the court in the months that remain between now and June. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but I think actually all that might matter. The person who I thought was actually the most interesting to watch in oral argument was Justice Sotomayor, who started off with overtures to the chief justice. I think her whole discussion about, you know, the stench of this, how will we deal with the stench of this, that was directed not at Mississippi's lawyer, Scott Stewart, who had to answer the question, but really toward the chief justice, who, of course, has been the most stalwart institutionalist on the court. She was trying to get him, and in turn, to get him to bring on side Kavanaugh and Barrett. And I think she recognized pretty quickly that that was a fool's errand. He wasn't going to uphold Roe and Casey. The best she could hope for from him was the sort of odd compromise that would eliminate viability but stop short of overruling Roe and Casey. And she definitely could not see him bringing along Kavanaugh and Barrett. And I think at that point, midway through the argument, she pivoted. And she started talking about the women. Where are the women in this calculus, she demanded, of Scott Stewart. She talked about the maternal mortality rate in Mississippi, which is abysmal. She talked about the records of poverty in Mississippi, which are terrible. And I think at that point, she was not having an argument with her colleagues. She wasn't even talking to her colleagues. She was talking to the people outside of one first street because this battle is over in the courts as far as she is concerned. But there will be perhaps a political battle that goes on outside of it. And maybe if we're lucky, the political battle that wages in the interim period between December 1st and June, when this decision is announced, may help shape the kind of discussions that Kate is talking about that will occur in conference. Two things that we don't know that I wonder if this inflects on what either of Kate or Melissa just said. One is we don't know what's going on behind the scenes with SB8. Yeah. The Texas abortion statute. Right. So I think the thing that's happening in conference or drafts around SB8 that they know and we don't know and why that opinion has not been made manifest. I think a lot of people expected it two weeks ago. I think that informs a lot of what 
Melissa's referencing in terms of how they're thinking about how they're going to look. And I keep thinking, I'm just so curious how the chief justice who wants to keep the opinion, right? Like this is his one power. And we forget that is assignment power. He does not want Thomas to write this opinion. And so how is he having now stipulated that he does not have two votes for what he wants to do? How does he keep the opinion in this case? And that I lie awake at night and I'm trying to think how he keeps control of this when absolutely nobody agrees with him. Well, let me push back on this one most critical proposition and remaining point of drama, at least as I see it. And I feel that I'm in the minority generally, but here I am on my own ice flow alone. This notion that I think all three of you are endorsing now that Barrett is out of reach and not even interested in the kind of what we would take to be a half measure, even though it's, of course, in its own way, an overruling of Roe, which is the Roberts position of here's the question presented, 15 weeks is constitutional and leave for another day the whole overruling. Now, we heard Gorsuch express hostility toward that very view, no doubt about Alito and Thomas, and Kavanaugh, I think, ripped the mask off very quickly with his odd first set of questions. I thought Barrett was open here, and I thought the main rationale for what others have taken to be a perplexing line of questioning, that is her proffering of the statutes that permit anybody to give up a baby at adoption and her saying, so it's just 15 weeks to force her to carry a baby to term, was to me a indication of some overall calculation of the degree of burden on the pregnant woman that no one else was going to make. The question of what comes thereafter is a huge one. That, of course, would answer Dahlia's question because Roberts would then be able to assign and the narrowest opinion would be simply to strike it down and not say even a version of those words, but leave it for the next day. So why am I clearly wrong here? Well, I think you're clearly wrong, Harry, because I did not take her invocation of the safe haven laws as an indication that she was willing to strike down the Mississippi law, but rather that she was simply expanding the terms on which we would consider something to be an undue burden. But if undue burden stays in play, that's the very meaning of the perpetuation of some kind of Casey-like inquiry as opposed to simply anything goes. I'm not sure that that's true. Your question is like, is there some world in which they strike down the Mississippi law and maintain the Roe status quo? I just don't think that that's the case. And so even if she were to come on side with the chief justice, it is to uphold the Mississippi law. And I don't think they have five votes to uphold the Mississippi law and stop short of overruling Roe. So there's that. But I thought her entire exchange with Julie Rickleman was basically about disaggregating the burden of pregnancy from the burden of parenthood. And in that regard, she seemed to be leaning into her own identity as a mother seven times over and indeed the mother of two adopted children. And the point she seemed to be making was, in Casey, the right to an abortion was justified by the fact that the burdens of motherhood are so impactful on women's employment and educational opportunities that there has to be some opportunity for women to make a choice about whether to assume the mantle of motherhood. And by disaggregating pregnancy and parenthood, she seemed to be saying, 
Well, once you leave your baby at the designated hospital or fire station, you are relieved of the burdens of parenthood and you can go be a Supreme Court justice if you want to, as I have done. And so the fact that you have to continue a pregnancy through to delivery is almost an incidental burden, given that you're still going to get to live out your career ambitions and educational ambitions. And that was the main concern of Casey, she seemed to be saying. So I didn't see her invocation of those laws as kind of a a midway position. It seemed to me a very hard right position. By the way, let me just commend the excellent article to everyone in the New York Times that you wrote about her singular position. Remember, however, at the time, she actually used the 15-week mark as a kind of a halfway mark in pregnancy. And I agree with every way you've characterized it. I'm just saying that she was actually making a statute-specific calibration about 15 weeks that one couldn't make of any statute in the country, right? So what's the point of doing that as a prelude to that it's entirely a matter to the states of how much burden we impose on women. Can I suggest a, a slightly alternate reading? So I totally agree yeah. with Melissa's reading. And why am I so wrong? <laughs> I feel like I'll offer mine and then let's bring Dahlia in who may have a different perspective exactly. on why you Harry, are so wrong. <laughs> on why you are wrong. Exactly. I totally agree with Melissa's point that she was seeking to disaggregate the burdens of pregnancy from the burdens of parenthood. I agree with that too. Weirdly absent from that as I read it was the burden of childbirth at separate. And pregnancy. But she said, look, there is a bodily autonomy interest, but then she sort of said in this kind of casual aside, well, but like vaccines, we sometimes do compromise bodily autonomy. Some people read that as suggesting skepticism to vaccine mandates. And maybe that would be the case. And, you know, if and when the court considers one. But I actually heard her to be saying, well, so far, the court at least has allowed for mandatory vaccination, like in 1905, at least. And that's an imposition on bodily autonomy. And so we've allowed that. And so that leaves compelled parenthood. But you know what? The safe haven laws sort of address that. As to the 15-week point, she said something interesting, which is that when she said the choice is either getting an abortion at 23 weeks under current law up to the viability line around 23 weeks or requiring women to go 15 or 16 weeks more. So she's saying the difference between 23 and 40. I think that's what she meant by 15. And so that seems trivial because she can just relinquish her parental rights at that point. So I actually heard her invocation of 15 there, not to be suggesting we can issue some Mississippi-specific ruling, but essentially as a justification for the triviality in her framing of the space between the current viability line and, you know, a full-term pregnancy of 40 weeks, because at that point, it's a couple months. Yeah, there's compulsion, but after that, you can relinquish. And so there's nothing constitutionally cognizable after that because, like, adoption exists and safe haven laws exist. Anyway, so that's my, like, slightly different take on uh, Melissa's why you're wrong. I don't know, Dahlia, if you have And she tags you now, and you come into the (laughs) ring and pummel me. Come on. I mean, I'm not here to pummel you. I just agree. I did not yeah. see that as a hope affording colloquy. I thought I took it yeah. as a pretty grim read of someone who, and I know Melissa's talked about this in the past, has seven kids in part because she has immense amounts of help. <laughs> and because at no time was she doing that without massive financial and community assistance. And I think in some ways just bespeaks how utterly clueless she is about what it is to not just, I mean, Kate talked about what it is to bear a child, to give up a child. I mean, just read all the accounts we're getting now about people whose adoptive parents were destroyed by giving up a child. But just the notion that we somehow live in a country where that's just a big nothing, because for her, 
it was a big nothing to adopt children, I think just deserves so much the actual lived experience. By the way, in a state, which is where Melissa started, where maternal mortality rates, I thought the most interesting thing was Julie Rickleman trying over and over again to say, there are material harms. You are 75 times more likely and getting cut off and getting told by the chief, oh, putting the data aside, Just in addition to everything that tactically Kate and Melissa have highlighted, I think it really went to the utter invisibility of actual women and their lives. And by the way, that stuff was in Mississippi's brief. All the crazy Brady Bunch story of like how fun and easy it is to be a single mom in Mississippi. That was Amy Coney Barrett just parroting that kind of commercial about what everyone should do in America is move to Mississippi and carry a baby to term because it's that awesome. There is something really grotesque about the right using her gender and her maternity. Her gender and her maternity are being used. And I don't mean this to diminish her credentials, which are sterling, but she was selected to provide feminine cover for a vote to overrule Roe. And she's not only leaning into that, she's leaning into her motherhood as part of a project of dismantling reproductive rights for other women and imposing motherhood on them because it has worked for her. All right, so everyone sees this as monolithic. It is clear that there was a stretch of time when there was some strategic or intellectual uncertainty among the five, right? What do we now think was happening during this remarkable nearly nine-month period when the case was relisted no fewer than 12 times. Why were they hesitating for so long? I think she was still getting her chamber set up, literally. Like, I think they were just giving her time. I mean, not actually just that, but they didn't want to appear to move the next week. So they give her some months following confirmation, whatever it is, six some months, something like that. Then Grant, so just like to give a little bit of a buffer. I think it's that simple. And again, I think SB8 is playing out in the background. There's two things happening in the background. One is that the court's popularity ratings are in the toilet. And Justice Barrett thinks a good way to cure that is just to fly out to Kentucky and stand next to Mitch McConnell and scold us about thinking they're partisan hacks. Okay, that didn't really work. But then that SB8 is playing out here and the court's thinking, I think for at least some time, hey, maybe we could just have abortion be unlawful in the second most populous state with 10% of the childbearing age people in the country unable to access abortion. And if nobody notices, we're golden. And I think, again, that didn't work out so good. We keep overestimating their EQ. They don't understand anything. When Justice Barrett flew out to Kentucky to give her speech, when Clarence Thomas gave his speech, when Justice Alito like gave his secret on the record, off the record speech, I think they genuinely believe that everybody in America is seven years old. I really think nobody says to them, this is going to not work. And so they do dumb stuff all the time. Another gloss on this is Yes, there is a huge buffer, I think, as Kate said, between when Justice Barrett joined the court and when they granted this petition. And I think part of that is that the conservative legal project is not just abortion. There's other stuff to be done and things to be checked off on Leonard Leo's to-do list. And they certainly made short work of that in the intervening period, too. So it wasn't like 
they were on vacation from conservatism. Like they were doing other things as they were relisting perhaps the most fraught petition on their certiorari docket. Let's stick with that for a second because you have written, Melissa, suggested that the evisceration of Roe, and again, to make my position clear, I think there's a real chance that it's eviscerated but not overruled. In other words, the Roberts position prevails. But in any event, you've suggested it's just step one on a more general demolition job on substantive due process. So I think that's connected to what might otherwise seem a kind of cryptic series of questions that Thomas was posing to everybody at oral argument. What's your basis for saying that this is just step one on a bigger project? Well, again, I think this is something about which Justice Thomas has not been cagey at all. I mean, he's written this extensively in writings before the court. He doesn't believe that substantive due process justifies the recognition of certain fundamental rights, namely the right to privacy and all of the rights that flow from that, including the right to use contraception. He doesn't believe the right to marry is one that the Constitution is required to recognize. He's been very clear about his views of the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. So he said all of that in past decisions. None of this is tethered to constitutional texts, and therefore it is part of that cadre of erroneous opinions that the court has an obligation under principles of stare decisis not to follow. And he made that very clear in 2019's Gamble versus United States, where he wrote a concurring opinion that was basically a peon to his version of stare decisis. So it's not even a question of saying the quiet part out loud. He's just saying the loud part out loud. And he's been saying it for quite a long time. We saw a number of briefs filed in Dobbs on the top side for the state that also echoed this. So there's one brief from Adam Mortara and Jonathan Mitchell. Jonathan Mitchell is the architect of Texas SB8. And it made very clear that not only were they encouraging and hoping that the court would take up Mississippi's invitation to overrule Roe and Casey, they encouraged the court not to stop there. Once Casey and Roe had been destabilized, other decisions of the court were similarly destabilized and should be reconsidered. And among those decisions they identified were Griswold versus Connecticut, the 1965 decision that announced the right of privacy, Eisenstadt versus Baird, the 1972 decision that extended that right of privacy to use contraception to unmarried persons, 2003's Lawrence versus Texas, which permitted same-sex sexual relationships, and then finally 2015's Obergefell versus Hodges. They also named in there Loving versus Virginia, the opinion in 1967, that legalized interracial marriage, but noted that there might be some statutory protections for interracial marriage. So I'm sure Justice Thomas breathed a huge sigh of relief upon reading that. It's just a litany of don't stop there. There's more to be done. As was that brief. And Thomas, you're right, has not been shy. But Dahlia or Kate, do you actually take any of those what we would have called landmark cases to be on the chopping block. And just to add a point to it, some of the strongest arguments in favor of Roe and Casey have always been, it seemed, look, the court has already embarked on this path and there's no real way distinguishing in principle from what they've done in these other cases, including Griswold. But if their answer to that is, that's right. And so here's our chopping block ready to go there'd be a coherence. Do you guys see that as on the chopping block? I mean, hard for me to see five based on the argument. Cases specifically asked the Mississippi Solicitor General a series of cases mentioning parental rights and privacy and contraception. And then 
Barrett sort of asked a very friendly question in which she said, basically, like, does ruling for you call any of those cases into question? And the Mississippi Solicitor General said, no, 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 absolutely not. Now, again, she's asking a question. She's not actually telling us what she thinks, but obviously— The inference there is that she, at least in this case, doesn't think the court needs to go there. And Kavanaugh, I think, even more than Barrett, by, you know, this long recitation of landmark overrulings with which he was trying to preemptively associate this overruling, and not just Brown's overruling of Plessy, but cases like Miranda and Mapp and Baker versus Carr. And interestingly, in that list, were Lawrence is overruling Bowers, and then he included Obergefell, which like kind of overruled, you know, dismissal for want of a substantial federal question case. But anyway, he included Obergefell. I think by listing those two, he is suggesting he is not going to be in any hurry to actually revisit those two. And I also think there may be a little bit of a generational divide between Kavanaugh and Barrett on the one hand and the older justices on the court like Thomas and Alito, in that I just think these younger justices, it's hard for me to see them revisiting these big landmark gay rights cases, honestly, even if the doctrinal implication of what they may say in this case is those actually are suspect as well or called into question as well. So I don't envision in the near term more than like two or three votes for this calling into question the whole line of cases on which Roe has been built. But, you know, this Overton window is shifting fast, so I guess I wouldn't say never. I always say that the tell is if they say something is safe, you should start worrying. And for me, Kavanaugh bragging about how Lawrence and Obergefell was not on the table was like, oh my God, now it's time to start worrying about those. And I do put this in the bucket of gaslighting a little bit because these are the same folks who were telling us at their hearings that Roe was safe. And so the larger point is they'll let you know if it's safe and if stare decisis has no meaning and substantive due process has no meaning us speculating about whether they want to do it or not is kind of not really the question. The fact is they will arrogate to themselves the power to do it. The only other thing is, and check me if I'm wrong, I think that Barrett was the first person at her confirmation unwilling to say that Griswold was not necessarily, like that everybody else has said that Griswold is whatever super precedent, like precedent of the court. So I actually think that Overton window, I think that line moved And nobody noticed it when she said at her hearings that maybe that one is. And just, you know, I always say to folks, this doesn't start and end at abortion, right? These are groups of people who object to surrogacy. They object to IVF. Some of them really do object to contraception. I mean, this is not about abortion. And so I think to just glibly say that the next thing down the line is IVF and surrogacy, we were saying that about Roe and we were saying it two years ago. I also think contraception, as you say, Dahlia, is also on the table. Justice Thomas has been very clear about associating the use of contraception and the birth control movement and Margaret Sanger with racism. I I Mm -hmm. don't think that's coincidental. I think this is about tarring that entire practice with a taint that will later allow them to circle back and scoop up contraception alongside abortion. Let me ask this. So we know what the opinion will look like if my supposition is right and Roberts is able to pull that little bit out of the fire with Barrett. But assume it's not. So assume it's the five and assume they're going to overrule one way or another. What's your educated guess about who writes and what they say? I guess the assigning justice will be Thomas. Who will get the opinion and how will it read? In terms of who gets it, if you're Thomas, you want Barrett to write. 
I think ask her, give her the opportunity to accept or to say, let me pass on this one. Keep her on the reservation? No, I think she's there. She's on side. I honestly think that they, yeah. the optics of her as the author would yeah, be I fantastic see. for the yeah. conservative bloc. The, this is the gender politics of it. Right. And so I think it's just a question of whether she is willing to do that and be the public face of it. And I have no idea what the answer to that is. I think there would be a side consultation in which he would say, I think this is a great opinion for you, but I understand you're a new justice and giving something this momentous to somebody a year in is big. And so I think it would be framed in that way. I don't know how explicit they would be. I honestly think that he would give her the opportunity to decline if she chose to. That makes sense. And in terms of how it's actually drafted. Well, at the end of the opinion, every woman in America will get a ticket to pick up her robe at the dry cleaner and <laughs> Right. That, that will be part, a detachable ticket for a handmade room. See, the pause I think we're hearing here, Harry, <laughs> is that all of us realize, I mean, we've had this conversation before, but that we're going to have to record podcasts on the day or mm-hmm. the day after this opinion yeah. is issued. And it's like almost too hard to contemplate what we will say. So we're having a little glimpse of that now. Look, they'll say that the opinion was wrong the day was decided. And in addition, these intervening developments around things like safe haven laws and better appreciation of the sort of move. I mean, the point of viability is that it does move. So I'm not even sure why a moving of a viability line calls into question the viability line, but I presume Presume they will say that it does. And Justice Blackman's personal papers. I think we're going to get a <laughs> right, citation meant, right, to, right, right. because, you know, in addition yeah. to your laundry list, it would seem now that your private notes that are actually in time subsumed by the actual opinion that doesn't make the point that your private notes make is now, I guess that's the real originalism. Like who needs to care what's in the opinion? We can look at what was in the justice's brain before he wrote the opinion. So I guess we're going to get that. And I think we're just going to get a really interesting Kavanaugh-style meditation on stare decisis about how it's really important to get out of the business of doing hard stuff. And the court should stay out of stuff. And scrupulous neutrality is the new moderation. All right. So to follow through and Breyer keeps the dissent and literally the chief justice of the United States in the most momentous case on on his watch writes alone. I think Justice Sotomayor will actually write the dissent and not Justice Breyer. I, I think part of that will be because, again, the sort of optics and gender politics of this, I think it will be really important for a woman of color to register her dissent here, especially because we've not talked about it, but The oral argument was really punctuated with these really racially charged moments. The invocation of Plessy, the idea that Brown and whatever Dobbs is going to be are somehow simpatico with one another. I mean, this is an opinion whose logic is going to be born on the backs of Black and Brown women and is going to be justified on the same terms as Brown versus Board of Education. There is a real kind of gruesome grotesqueness about this. And I think Justice Sotomayor, more so than Justice Breyer, is the person who has to speak to that. And this is not to say that Justice Breyer will not take the opportunity to write separately. I think it is to say that I probably won't read it. Well, Melissa, he stayed on the court. You remember? This is why he stayed, (laughs) so that he could write the majority opinions in uh, Bruin and in this. I think that's going to be a hell of an opinion when he writes. Well, I mean, he had so many good moments yesterday. There was the whole beginning of the oral argument where it was just literally— Justice Thomas, Justice Breyer, Scott Stewart talking about lady parts and and what women needed to do for 12 minutes until Justice Sotomayor mercifully intervened to talk about women as a woman. (laughs) There was clearly a generational divide in addition to a political divide on display. 
Ah, yeah, you've written, others have. The gloves are off, no more lying, the court has a permanent stench. We have heard that before, right? Especially, I think, a Bush v. Gore. Who's to say they won't just get away with it? Is everyone confident this is a terrible body blow to the court? I'm not. I'm seeing three uber glum faces. They have seeded (laughs) the conditions for this to be just completely accepted. We don't think of voting rights and reproductive rights as being inextricably intertwined, but in this situation, I think they are. I mean, how are you going to register your objections to this decision as a citizen if there is rampant voter suppression, if you are being gerrymandered out of having a voice? They've basically ceded the ground conditions to insulate their work from the political process. And the confluence of SB8 and the consideration of this case also, I think, has desensitized the public to a degree to this unbelievable, like, functional denial of abortion access in the second most populous state in the country. And so I think that that, too, has done a lot of groundwork laying. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood. Red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose to help your wine get the most from your dish and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb. And there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, you can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's move a little bit to SB8 and just in general, the point that Melissa made about this being of a piece with other things that are going on. So I wanted to touch on a few cases just from this young term, the Second Amendment, New York rifle case, SB8, maybe the Chevron case, all being on a wish list for the new right. What about the SB8? And so just to recap, it's been, what, six weeks since they heard it? Four and a half, November 1. So, and you would certainly think if there were five votes to reverse this so-called unprecedented enforcement scheme, we'd have seen a stay issue. So what is going on there? And how do you relate it 
to the Mississippi case from this week. SB8 was like a little bit of a head fake because it gave us a month in which to think, hey, Kavanaugh and Barrett, at minimum, have real reservations about doing that on the shadow docket with garbage reasoning. And that maybe the way SB8 rolled out made the court look I think the word I kept using was just a self-own. There was no reason to do it that way. And again, it goes to my overarching thesis of today, which is it was just stupid. And so listening to that and hearing argument, it was clear that both Barrett and Kavanaugh were performing a sort of solicitude to Kavanaugh's was just a solicitude to gun owners and Barrett maybe to some version of either judicial supremacy or the supremacy of federal law. So I think it screwed us up a little because we came to believe that they cared about those things. (laughs) And I think all of the kind of chorus going into Dobbs was this is a 333 court and Kavanaugh, Barrett and the chief really showed us in those SB8 arguments that they care about public opinion and they care about the optics and they made a mistake on September 1st and they're pulling back. I think one of the reasons that Dobbs was getting kind of smacked in the face with a halibut was that that was clearly wrong. And so I partly take Kate's incredibly depressing lesson, which was all that the SBA drama did was get everybody very excited for one week in September. And then we all just went back to sleep as abortion became unlawful in Texas. And three months later, nobody cares. And it pushed the Overton window so that if the court decides in the end of the day, like, "Mm, maybe we should strike down SB8 because we would really hate if New York or California did this with guns, the court's going to be able to say, look how moderate and temperate we are. (laughs) We took away the six-week ban. The 15-week ban is like practically a dream for reproductive rights. And I think that's how this is going to get played. I hope I'm wrong. I think that SB8 was a piece of bait. I just used halibut and bait in the same metaphor. I think it was a trial balloon sort of floated. Like, what does the public do when you curtail abortion access in the second most populous state? Floated by Texas. Well, Texas in conjunction, I think, with the entire anti-choice movement. That is a really interesting aspect in a whole nother podcast is these are not separate states. There is a sort of intellectual underpinning and a cabal of sorts that are writing these things, including in particular the enforcement mechanism. Maybe this is a do the right thing moment, Harry. Yeah. The end of do the right thing when Spike Lee's character says, wake up. Maybe this is the wake up moment for the progressive legal movement. I sort of put this in the irony department, but Senator Collins is endorsing federal legislation to supposedly make Roe the statutory law of the land. Uh, Is that something you think can work legally and that is feasible politically? Susan Collins both wants to codify Roe and opposes WIPA. Like, we're done. It's ridiculous. I think that Melissa makes this point that everybody is kind of eliding, which is, I keep hearing over and over again, this is going to be so great when they overturn Roe because it's really going to galvanize women to get out to the ballot box. And I find myself, I mean, A, could you be more transactional? Like, it's good to take away women's reproductive freedom because it'll goose the vote. Okay. But the larger point is that the same court that has been showing us for years that they are mad excited to do away with reproductive rights have been telling us that they are mad excited to do away with voting rights. And if we can't understand that WIPA doesn't get passed in the existing voting system that we have constructed, that the system of democracy itself is going to stand in the way of remedying this. 
it's sort of like, oh, good, women will really get out there and vote. By the way, women are the ones who've been doing all the work this whole time. And second of all, the idea that democracy is going to save us, like (laughs) this court is an anti-democratic institution doing anti-democratic things. All right. And there's a somber end to the other two. So, all right, I'm going to call an audible on our Talking Five and ask for you guys to answer. So the question is, will the Supreme Court again come to recognize the constitutional protections for a woman's right to choose. I'll start, which I never do. Yes, it will. Can't imagine in 2050 or whatever that this remains the law of the land by the Supreme Court's interpretation of the federal constitution. I'll say I'm not sure, but it could fundamentally change the power and role of the Supreme Court. Whether there's a restoration of the status quo prior to Dobbs or through some other mechanism, there's a restoration of access to reproductive care. I do agree. It's just too depressing to contemplate this being the status quo forever, but I'm not sure that the court revisiting and reversing itself is the way that gets rectified. Good point. Okay. Sure, Jan, I guess. (laughs) I, I think you fundamentally understate the degree to which some serious constituency in this country really enjoys subordinating women. It's only been 100 years since the vote. Not every woman got the opportunity to vote after 1920. And the women's rights movement has really only been in full flower since the 1970s. I mean, and then this happens. I think there's a fundamental distrust of women participating in public life. And once you eliminate that prospect and eliminate the right to abortion, I mean, why go back? Because we as a country have sort of indicated that we're actually okay with that. But that's actually the status quo we like. Sorry, Harry, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going (laughs) to. No, 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 please. Dahlia, any thoughts? Sizing up what Melissa just said, which is I'm in grievous doubt about institutions. I think that being sanguine about the court functioning as a court, about law functioning as law, voting functioning as voting in 20, 30 years, I really think that we are putting an immense amount of faith in institutions that I, I don't know that they are as robust as we think they are. And I think if we're not working now to shore up institutions, assuming that in 20 years this all gets corrected, feels very optimistic to me. I hope these institutions are thriving and functioning in five years. That's really even crappier than what Melissa just said. But And there's an end, mainly because you've got to go. I've got to go be depressing somewhere else. This will be an all-time lugubrious uh, ta- talking fed. You can change the name to crying feds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sobbing <laughs> feds. <laughs> there you have it, our episode on Dobbs, the Supreme Court's likely opinion, and the probable impact for American political life and the lives of American women. Thank you very much to Dahlia, Kate, and Melissa. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but really original one-on-one discussions with national and international experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted 
a discussion with Dan Alonzo on Jeffrey Clark and his plan to invoke the fifth, explainers from me on the vaccine mandate, the Dobbs argument and important cases for it, and the D.C. Circuit opinion involving Trump and his subpoena, a one-on-one with Ann Applebaum about her indispensable cover piece in the Atlantic Autocracy, Inc., and an interview with Thomas Edsel, eminent longtime op-ed columnist about the political fortunes for the Democrats in the coming midterms. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and then decide if you would like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Ray Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And our consulting producers are Dustin Canals and Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Talk to you later.